The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What does the new Omicron coronavirus variant mean for the global fight against inflation? Stay tuned to find out. Meanwhile, Jack Dorsey is doing something that I should probably do too, walking away from Twitter. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Welcome to The Views Room, the weekly podcast of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. I'm John Foley, coming to you from a chilly New York. The world is watching this week for clues on how to interpret the discovery of a new coronavirus variant labelled Omicron. The World Health Organization says it poses a high risk of surging global infections. And one thing that's clear is that the financial markets don't like it one bit. Swaha Patanek, our economics guru, chatted with Breaking News editor Rob Cox about what all this could mean for monetary policy. Swaha's view is that if Omicron spreads, inflation might too. Meanwhile, I talked with our Washington columnist Gina Chon about the changeover that's happening at Twitter, where founder Jack Dorsey has stood down as chief executive to focus on his payment company Square and probably other Jack Dorsey things like taking ice baths and intermittent fasting. Swaha, you have been taking a look at the impact that Omicron, this new variation of the COVID-19 virus, may have on economies around the world. And you came out with a view which was quite against the, um, the market response, uh, which suggested that people out there, investors, thought that a new uh, wave of COVID would somehow dampen down inflation and inflationary expectations. But you, you make a different point. Well, yeah, I think there is um, some truth to the fact that you might get a bit of a downward pressure on consumer prices, which are very high in most of the developed world. We put Japan to one side. But I think the longer term view, which was expressed in a sort of a very technical bit of the financial market, which is uh, tracked by the five year five and forward, it tells that bit of the market tells you what inflation expectations are five to 10 years from now. And those went down. And I don't know that that was the right response. Basically, there may be problems in the short term, but there are several reasons why this wouldn't be well, let's a go long term. Them. You kind of, in your piece, you you tick through three of the reasons that you think we should uh, not expect that this will have some impact or, or, or reduce inflation. Um, the first one you point out is that the supply chain problems are going to exactly. continue. Exactly. So the impeta- the immediate uh, thinking was that you're going to get uh, depressed demand. Well, yes, but you will also may end up with the same sort of depressed supply problems that have led to this round of inflation, or at least made it so much more acute than we've seen for a long, long time. And then you also think that there is built into uh, sort of the supply, well, I don't know what you call it, economies, their producer prices are already going up. That at some point filters down to consumer prices too. And then, I mean, what is your sense about the structural uh, belief that there is uh, inflation coming? Well, where we were in March 2020, before the first wave of coronavirus spread around the world, was that there wasn't that much inflation in the developed economies. And central bankers would quite welcome some at that point. Now we're at a very different position. 
inflation is running well above the 2% level that central banks target in Europe, in US. And in the UK, it's three times above 2% in the US if you go by the CPI measure, which is not what the Fed tracks, but still. So we're in a different place. And there's been so much pressure on suppliers. They have passed those prices down the line. And what you're seeing, producer prices are a measure of the sort of price pressures that are in the pipeline and will eventually, as you pointed out, feed through to what you and I pay in the supermarkets or shops. That is coming down the pipeline. And that's very elevated at the moment. So we're in a very different place in price pressures wise to where we were in 2020. So it shouldn't just be a repeat of, oh, we're going to get depressed prices. Right. But then the, the third point you make is, the, is the, the decision that policymakers like Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve or Christine Lagarde of the European Central Bank have made. Exactly. Both of those central bankers have changed the monetary policy framework, sort of technical way of saying, how do I go about thinking about what I should do with monetary policy? And both of them have decided to give inflation a chance to wait to see the eyes, whites of the eyes of inflation, if you like, before reacting. In years gone by, in past decades, most central bankers would have moved quickly to head off inflation. So the longer you leave inflation time to bed in and people get used to seeing very high rates and they want wage increases which match, you start getting it seen sort of bedding into the system, if you like. Now, there's some signs that Jay Powell is maybe rethinking that, but we're still some way off from the rate rises, which would have you know, come a long time ago, like earlier this year, in say 10, 15 years ago in central banking. Well, as you pointed out in another piece this week that uh, Jay Powell is ditching the word transitory as a way of describing the current higher rate of inflation. What? How do you read that? About time is all I would say. It's been a long time and they've done a lot of verbal gymnastics to explain why transitory doesn't actually refer to temporal sort of measures. And you're thinking, what is transitory then? Um, uh, in that sense, I think that was well overdue. And he's doing a, a sort of difficult balancing act because he's having to judge whether the new COVID variant is actually going to harm the economy. Should he pay more attention? It's to inflation, it's not an easy job by any means. Having said that, ditching that is very helpful because he can be a bit more fluid in the decision making. Okay, well, thank you, Swaha. Now stay safe, avoid Omicron if you can. Thanks, Rob. Gina, hi, thanks for joining us from Washington, DC. I feel like we've been hearing for several months now about this idea of the great resignation, you know, people throwing in their jobs and trying to do something more rewarding in this kind of soul searching mid-COVID moment. And it looks like we have an example of this, a high-profile example of this at Twitter. So Jack Dorsey uh, on Monday said he was quitting straight away to go and focus on the other company that he founded, Square. Now, you've been writing about this this week, and I think it's fair to say that you you would say this is overdue and a good thing, right? And I guess I'd, I'd love to hear why and for whom Dorsey stepping down is good. Yeah, well, as you say, because Dorsey had two CEO roles, he was splitting his time at both those companies, but that meant that he wasn't really fully present at either of them, and that hurt both of them. I mean, Twitter in particular, um, we've seen compared to their other social media rivals, slow down in user growth, slow down in product innovation, and it's 
essentially the same company it was uh, when Dorsey founded it. As for Square, that has done much better and has grown rapidly under Dorsey's charge, but it is facing growing competition from really big rivals like PayPal and Shopify. So that company could also use some more attention from its leader. And so both of them will probably end up being better off with, with Dorsey leaving Twitter. So what do you reckon a Dorsey-less Twitter should look like? Because Twitter, as you say, it's it's quite amazing when you look at the way Twitter has been just overtaken by companies like Snap, which I think has twice the market capitalization now that Twitter does. And, you know, Facebook has two billion daily users, whereas Twitter has about, you know, 200 and something million. Like what, why, what can, what should Twitter be doing to try and capture some of this ground back? Well, uh, say what you want about Facebook, and you can definitely heap a lot of criticisms on the company, but under Mark Zuckerberg, it has radically changed from its initial product. It now has Instagram, it has the messaging app WhatsApp, it's recently decided to change its name to Meta Platforms to focus on the metaverse um, of merging sort of the virtual and real world, whereas Twitter, is, as we've said, has basically remained the same. Um, they are looking at trying to monetize their users more. So they have been introducing subscription services. They have uh, sort of a, an audio social app copycat of Clubhouse, which seems to be doing okay. And so if they can do more of that and, and possibly branch out more into um, video and, and other areas where it seems like particularly younger users are moving, they could have a shot. And the good news for them is they do have a loyal base of users. So even if um, they're not growing as much, they're pretty sticky. And the new CEO of the company, Prag Agrawal, who is the chief technology officer, has been at the company a long time, knows it in and out, but also provides some fresh blood, whereas um, Dorsey is, was sort of slowing things down more than anything as CEO there. Where does this leave Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg at, at Meta Platforms, Gina? Because he's now one of the a dwindling band of tech founders who are still in their job. We've seen Jeff Bezos stand down at Amazon.com, Larry Page and Sergey Brin no longer run Google or Alphabet is now known. You know, Travis Kalanick is no longer running Uber since 2019, admittedly for kind of other kind of cultural reasons. So what is Zuckerberg next, do you think? Well, he definitely probably has more staying power than some of the others, chiefly because Facebook has dual class shares and Zuckerberg controls around 60% of the shareholder vote. And he has recently introduced this metaverse goal, at which he is really into. If you look at all of his Facebook posts recently, it's all of him, you know, wearing his like virtual reality headset and talking about how we're all going to be like avatars in the future. So it's harder to see him go, even though he's obviously under a tremendous amount of regulatory and political pressure. Whereas at Twitter, they only had one class of shares and they had already been dealing with an activist investor in Elliott Management since last year, which had pushed for 
Dorsey to leave and then eventually sort of settled with him. But Dorsey himself, I think, was a, a bit bored at Twitter and under regulatory scrutiny as well, which isn't as fun in terms of running a company. It's strange because he's kind of one of the, considering how bland Twitter's performance has been, Dorsey's one of the more colorful tech founders, isn't he? He drinks salt water and meditates and fasts and only ice baths and ice baths. And all this kind of, what do you think he's going to do now? And obviously he's focusing on Square, but Bitcoin seems to be his thing, right? His Twitter bio is literally just the word Bitcoin. Yeah, um, well, and he has said if he wasn't at Twitter or Square, he would be into Bitcoin. And so you see that cryptocurrency playing a bigger role at Square. He's looking at, you know, various ways that the company can incorporate the currency into what it does and and sort of its offerings. And, you know, maybe and that was true even at Twitter. I mean, they were looking at trying to build some sort of decentralized financial platform that's been the rage in the digital asset space. So I think we can see uh, more of that at Square, but at Square too, he's he's going to also have to focus on this growing competition in terms of the bread and butter of what they do in the payment space. And, and maybe that's not as exciting as Bitcoin. So we'll see how he does there. So like, it's also interesting that you, you'd written before a, a number of times about this kind of problem at Twitter where Jack Dorsey was thinly spread, right? Running two companies, Twitter and the much bigger square at the same time is not ideal. And they've, they've obviously ironed out that wrinkle now by him standing down. But they've introduced a, another weird wrinkle, which is that the, the new chair of the board, Brett Taylor, who was already on Twitter's board, but is also at the same time being promoted to be co-CEO of Salesforce, um, which is obviously a gigantic company that's not really related directly to what Twitter does. It focuses on, you know, business software, mostly um, in the cloud. How, like, talk me through that a bit, because how is he supposed to do both of these jobs? And what exactly is, what is what is this job that he's now doing at Salesforce? Well, that, that's a good question and remains to be seen. I mean, especially with a new CEO who doesn't have experience in running a company in um, Prague Agrawal, he will probably need some handholding, which would uh, come from the chair of the board and Brett Taylor. And the amount of time he has to do that now that he has been named as co-CEO Salesforce is a big question. Um, I mean, the one thing that may uh, curb that a bit is that Mark Benioff, the founder and CEO of Salesforce, had a co-CEO before as well, and and that relationship uh, didn't seem to work out. And so Benioff was on his own for a while, and now he's named a a co-CEO again. But Benioff is there, and he's a very uh, strong presence, even though he does have other interests and ambitions outside of the company. Um, So it's it's unclear in both places how much time and energy each one will require, just given um, the uh, the other uh, presence of, of Benioff and, and others on the um, at the company. Yeah, and the co-CEO structure, I guess. I mean, it's weird to have two CEOs, but it's not completely unheard of, right? Netflix does this. Um, Warby Parker, the kind of glasses, you know, digital glasses unicorn, um, does this. Um, 
it, it just it kind of seems a bit strange. I, the other the other thing that is also strange here is that there is kind of a a weird history between Twitter and Salesforce, right? And I I wonder if that's going to come back in some kind of new way now that we have the same person chairing Twitter and running co-running Salesforce. Yeah, uh, Salesforce back in the day in, in 2016 or so wanted to acquire Twitter and the talks went pretty far, but shareholders of Salesforce uh, definitely did not like that deal. And Benioff was forced to walk away from it in what he describes as a humbling experience in his latest book. So there's definitely that connection. I mean, this time it maybe harder just given the major conflicts of interest but we've seen salesforce acquire slack an office messaging service and so whether it wants to sort of expand in that space to to look at sort of quasi social media kind of ventures you know it's definitely a possibility but that would obviously raise conflicts of interest and make brett taylor's job even more dicey I mean, yeah, well, however you look at it, you've now got Twitter as being overseen by the co-CEO of a company that once tried to buy it, which is probably slightly more complicated than shareholders would ideally like. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, Taylor was already on the board, but being chair is another level. And so, yeah, there's a lot of weird connections there, but it's also kind of very Silicon Valley. Absolutely. Well, we'll keep watching this because I'm sure in 2022, Silicon Valley will find lots of new ways to rip up corporate governance norms. Um, Thanks very much, Gina. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Views Room, a Reuters Breaking Views podcast hosted by me, John Foley, and featuring Rob Cox, Swaha Patanik, and Gina Chon. Thanks to our superstar producer, Sharon Lamb. You can also find more episodes of The Views Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast, or wherever you get your podcast entertainment. And you can find out more about us, including reading our columns and watching our videos at breakingviews.com and on Twitter at Breaking Views.